This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We are going to have a very interesting episode as I get to discuss inactivity and obesity with the world-leading expert of the team. Our guest is working as a professor and associate executive director at Pennington Biomedical Research Center in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, US. He has published his research in more than 580 scholarly journals and books and is one of the most highly cited researchers in the world. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Professor Peter Katzmarczyk. Welcome, Peter. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, th- nice, nice to have you. So, so what kind of things are keeping you busy at the moment? Well, you know, with with the COVID pandemic, it's um, as most researchers are finding out. We're really busier than ever, you know. We're we're attempting to uh, continue our own research programs in physical activity and and health, but also address the the new issues that have been raised by the pandemic. So, you know, I, I live in Louisiana in the United States, and we were hit particularly hard early on in the pandemic. We were really leading the nation in terms of cases and hospitalizations and deaths. So a lot of our effort at the Pennington Center was shifted a little bit from our our primary areas of focus to really deal with this public health crisis. So myself and others at the center have been actively involved in a lot of community-engaged research to uh, expand community testing for COVID, as well as now, to address vaccine hesitancy. So it's been an exciting time in public health, but a very, very busy time as we try to balance our, our, our traditional research portfolios with this new uh, public health crisis. Uh, so it's been a very interesting time. Yeah, so have you started new research projects or is it mainly just helping helping with the public health efforts? Yeah, I was actually very lucky. Uh, you know, as we as we know, uh, the pandemic really put the brakes on a lot of clinical research. So I had many colleagues that were just starting their new trials, starting their new studies as the pandemic hit. And of course, a lot of this had to be put on hold. So, you know, our center closed for several months. And even beyond that, um, you know, the patients and the participants, you know, they were in lockdown in their homes. They couldn't really come in or uh, participate in research. So luckily for me and my team, we had just finished one of our, our big trials as of uh, September 2019. So we were in the phase of actually analyzing the data and writing papers. So for us, um, we were not impacted to a huge extent because we continue over the last year to work on those papers and analyses and those sorts of things. So um, we count ourselves very, very lucky for where we were 
uh, in that time. And beyond that, you know, even though we were in lockdown, we had many opportunities now to focus ourselves on writing new grants to get new trials and new things started. So from, from our perspective, you know, it was a balance. It was a balance between trying to drive our own research forward and dealing with the public health crisis. So, you know, in, in Louisiana, uh, we were involved with several initiatives related to COVID. One was doing uh, seroprevalence studies in the Baton Rouge and New Orleans areas. These are two of our major cities. And so we were able to undertake that work as part of the public health surveillance efforts. And as well, we were involved with the governor uh, as a member of his task force on understanding health disparities in COVID and trying to address that. So this also took a lot of time and it continues to this day. We really found that COVID uncovered these health disparities, which were always there and we knew they were there, but it really kind of shone a light on them to see that our minority populations were, were hit first and hit hardest really from COVID. So this is, um, this has been where we've been focusing a lot of our time. Yeah. So, so you have been doing many kind of studies, and and the COVID have been showing the health dis discrepancies in in the population. Uh, what kind of studies are you planning, or what kind of studies you you doing now for for that? Well, now that um, now that we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic, and things seem to be um, looking a little brighter for the future. We, we were able to um, get a follow-up grant now from the, the study that I mentioned that we finished in September of 2019. We've now received a grant to take that study, which was a obesity intervention. It was a study of weight loss in underserved populations. And this new project will be an implementation uh, dissemination type of grant, where we're, we're taking that evidence-based program and disseminating it within a healthcare organization. So it's it's really an implementation grant to study not only the effectiveness of this intervention, but now to study its implementation in a real-world setting. So we're working with a healthcare organization in Louisiana it's actually the largest healthcare organization in Louisiana. And we will be implementing this intervention through their digital medicine program. So we'll be delivering the intervention through the uh, electronic medical record portal using health coaches who will be live. These will be live health coaches, but they will be through the video rather than in person. So COVID also showed us that this actually is very effective in terms of healthcare and delivery. So we'll see if it works in this case. Um, we were hoping it is uh, as effective as it was in person, but we will have to see about that. Yeah, so basically you finished in September 2019 this uh, obesity intervention. Do you already have some some results you could you could share from that study? Sure, sure. We're, we're very excited about that study. This was a... Uh, it was a, a two-year intervention, so the participants were in the study for two years. And it was a lifestyle-based intervention aimed at increasing physical activity and improving nutrition. 
It was based on the diabetes prevention program model. However, we spent approximately one year adopting the intervention to be culturally more appropriate for our population in Louisiana and also health literacy appropriate. You know, we have um, low levels of health literacy in Louisiana. You know, we're ranked among one of the uh, lowest states for health literacy. So we tried to make the intervention as understandable as possible. You know, we don't talk about energy balance. We don't talk about kilocalories. You know, we try to focus people on um, portion control, you know, and understanding what proper portion sizes are and simple ways to increase their physical activity. And anyway, uh, the results uh, were very exciting. We, through this lifestyle intervention, which was delivered in primary care clinics, we saw a 5% weight loss, which was maintained out at 24 months. And the weight loss was um, particularly good about six or 12 months into the intervention. And it crept back up a little bit as, as most studies do towards the baseline. However, we were very excited that, you know, um, patients on average lost about 5% of their body weight, which is clinically significant, especially out at two years. They were able to maintain that two years later. So we were very excited about that. And the other thing was that 50% of the patients uh, maintained at least a 5% weight loss at that time. And about 25% or one quarter of the patients maintained at least a 10% weight loss. So again, uh, we, we felt these results were particularly strong given that this was a low income, underserved population that has a lot of issues around obtaining good healthcare. So in the end, you know, the intervention showed that we were able to get clinically meaningful weight loss over two years in this underserved population. So it was really a, an effectiveness trial where we were, we were getting out into the, in, into the real world setting and showing that it's very, very effective. And so now, as I mentioned, we're moving beyond that even now to another pragmatic trial where we're gonna study it in a healthcare system now. So, so basically you said that you were adapting it for quite a long time, the language for the health literacy. Could you tell what, what kind of adaptation maybe our listeners are interested to hear how to, how to do the adaptation? What did you learn in the, in the process? Sure, sure. And by the way, all of our, um, our, all of our intervention manuals are freely available. They're all online. Uh, so people can access that. It's called the Propel trial, P-R-O-P-E-L, Propel. So that is readily searched online and all of our materials are available. But essentially, we had, you know, over 40 intervention sessions lined out, uh, lined up, sorry, for the, for the patients. And we, we started with the diabetes prevention program and the look ahead trial, which was also an adaptation of the diabetes prevention program. And we looked at the materials and, uh, basically took the bullet points, the main bullet points from those interventions and expanded upon them for our population. So if you were to look at our intervention materials, there's a lot of white space on the paper. There's a lot of photographs and a lot of bullet points 
rather than big sentences or big paragraphs explaining the physiology of weight loss. You know, we're, it, we're being very pragmatic. We used a, um, a light system, you know, where, where if people were doing well, they were in the green zone, or if they weren't doing so well, they were in the uh, yellow light zone. And if they were doing very badly in terms of even gaining weight, you know, they were in the red light. Uh, so we used this kind of um, a stoplight approach to guide guide the patients along their journey for weight loss. And when you ask about the the adaptations, you know, some of the manuals had, you know, just pictures of very lean or athletic looking individuals throughout the uh, materials. A lot of middle-aged white women were portrayed standing in their um, in their kitchen, for example. And so for our population in Louisiana, which has high levels of overweight and obesity and diabetes, and we have a large minority population, our patients didn't see themselves reflected in that material. Um, and as well, the foods, you know, if anyone's ever been to Louisiana, they know we have a very different culture in terms of eating and the Cajun uh, food culture. So, so essentially, we went through all of that intervention material and put in pictures uh, that reflected our population. We put in the foods, which would reflect our local cuisine and our local lifestyle. And we worked with two health literacy experts. Uh, they're, they're nationally known experts on health literacy, and they helped us with the wording, making it very, very clear and simple language. So again, this took one year. I mean, we met with the health literacy experts once a week, and we went through all of the sessions, and we just uh, changed them to make it more appropriate for our population. And just one more note on this, this adaptation, that we also engaged the patients themselves. We didn't engage patients who were enrolled in the trial because the trial hadn't started, but we did focus groups with patients. And we also had three patient advisory boards. So these were groups of patients that had issues with obesity and a history of working with weight loss. And so they helped us. We presented the materials to them and they, they helped us refine them and make them better all along the way. So, you know, it's, it's rather a complicated process. We're working with academic experts. We're adapting materials and we're also working with the patients themselves. But in the end, after that first year, I think we had a very nice, very nice product that we could now use in our study. For most sedentary behavior and physical activity researchers, collecting the research data is one of the most frustrating steps of a project, especially as inefficient data collection steals too much of your precious time, causes unnecessary stress and hassle, and can easily derail progress of your project. This is why we devised a revolutionary new way to collect data, introducing Fibian Sense Motion, the beginning of a new era. Fibian Sense Motion is a cutting-edge next-generation system that allows you to easily and remotely collect, store, and manage data. Our solution features a tiny, waterproof device that captures the sedentary behavior and physical activity data a mobile app for automatic uploading of the data from the device, and a cloud service for managing the data. 
Even better, all collected data is GDPR compliant, and you have access to automatically analyzed variables of activity types and raw 3-axis accelerometer data. Don't compromise on the quality of your research or the project timeframes. Discover the convenience and power behind our solution at sense.fibian.com. That is s-e-n-s.fibian.com. Fibian, created by researchers for researchers. And how do you think, for example, you said that you are not talking about energy expenditure or kilocalories, but those are quite essential behind to understand. Or do you see that there needs to be no understanding when there's just clear guidelines and the weight is going down? Are people just happy? Or how, how do you see the understanding point? Yeah, it's like... Um... Uh, that, that's an excellent question. I, I don't think individuals need to understand the physiology or the biology of weight loss in order to lead healthier lifestyles and to lose weight. Um, and so that's kind of where we started our philosophy. And you just mentioned about them feeling happy. We found that one of the best predictors of the long-term weight loss was how much weight they lost in the very beginning. So if we could get them onto a, a portion controlled kind of meal plan, and by portion controlled, I, I don't necessarily mean, you know, buying um, these special meals, you know, from some company that make portion controlled foods. You know, uh, an apple is a portion controlled food. A banana is portion controlled. You can, and of course, you can certainly um, make your own portion controlled foods you know, by buying a box of Cheerios and dividing that up into proper portions. So we, we taught them about portion control, and that was kind of the focus early on. And so by focusing on portion control, we really got significant weight loss in the first six months. And so this made them very happy. They could see the scale weight going down. They could see their waist circumference coming down. And this really promoted greater adherence to the program and greater long-term weight loss. So it's just like essential hypertension. You know, we know someone's blood pressure is high, but we don't necessarily know why or what the underlying cause is. But we can still treat that hypertension. You know, we have lifestyle, we have drugs. We can treat the hypertension even though we don't know the actual cause of it. And so this is, this is kind of the way we understood obesity as well, that the people themselves didn't have to understand the physiology behind it, but as long as they understood what a healthy lifestyle meant and, and, and how that could impact their health, you know, that, that created success for them to keep moving in the program, you know, and I don't think most people care about, um, you know, kilocalories and energy balance. They just care that they're feeling better, that the weight's going down, they're getting more activity, these sorts of things. So it was a, it was an interesting approach, um, and we'll see how uh, we'll see how the rest of the academic community uh, use it as well. And and basically, you said that it was important to get success in the beginning, and you said that the weight loss in the first six months. But usually, people want to go on scale the first week or something. How did you how did you prevent this, and what were the time points when they go on the scale? Well, as part of our intervention we encourage them to weigh themselves daily 
or even weekly. So just depending on how much they wanted to weigh themselves, we encouraged them to do it. And we actually provided all the people in the intervention with a digital scale. And that the data from the scale uh, would actually come to us. It was a, a wireless scale. And all of, every time they stepped on the scale, we would receive their body weight. And we plotted it you know, against what we should be seeing based on their kilocalorie reduction. And they could actually see their weight coming down. And that was very motivational for them. And if their weight wasn't coming down, then this was kind of a trigger for them and for our health coaches to maybe think about the intervention a little differently, to find out what the barriers are, uh, why isn't the weight coming down, what is it that we need to do to change that. So the, the weight loss graph, as we called it, this weight loss graph where they weighed themselves, I think was kind of a, a novel part of the intervention and it allowed us to track their progress in real time. We could actually see that what was going on and if they began to plateau, then we could intervene and see what was going on. Was there any problem with the fluctuation, you know, liquid balance uh, and different things, salt intake affected? Did you kind of smooth the curve or say that it it normal amount of salt or something that it doesn't kind of give, give false readings in a way? No, we it, it worked pretty well, uh, especially when you had a lot of data points. Like if you think about a two-year study and daily weights, you obviously get some variability in that. But if you look at the trend overall, week to week, you know, you see it coming down very nicely. So it, it was kind of almost auto smoothing. It smoothed itself out over time. But of course, there was a lot of noise in the data. Just, you know, it was like looking at a scatter plot, you know, where you see there's an overall correlation, but there is some scatter around that line. And so the, the more they weighed themselves, the more points there were. And it kind of t tended to smooth itself out pretty, pretty nicely. So we thought it was a, a pretty good approach. Yeah, yeah, sounds sounds good. And and if I go a little bit wider, you have been studying obesity for de decades. So and it's a huge global issue. Uh, what do you think are the main points on a global scale? And maybe what are the things that are misunderstood or things that don't get enough attention? Oh boy, that's a big question. Is <laughs> um. I think there's a lot to be learned from the global trends and what we're seeing. And I think we need to learn from the successes that that we've seen. And there haven't been a lot. There haven't been a lot of successes. Uh, to Otherwise, we would perhaps be a lot further in addressing this obesity problem. But I, I, th I think kind of a a uh, big moment has been, you know, the realization <clears throat> that obesity is not not so much uh, a personal problem. And I, I, I don't mean that in the way that it's not personal. Everyone has their, their personal weight loss journey. But there's been a shift in the understanding that it's, it's uh, you know, it's not all right to be blaming the patient. You know, it's it's that we live in an obesogenic environment that we're faced constantly with daily pressures, uh, which reduce our physical activity, 
and we're bombarded by messages, you know, to eat more. So this whole idea of blaming the patient for obesity and being able to turn that around and to, to make it more about the environment that we live in. And uh, I think this has been huge. Um, you know, at Pennington, we're starting a, a, a campaign, we're doing a, a public health campaign around obesity with that focus. That if someone has cancer, you, you don't blame that patient for having cancer. <laughs> but if someone has obesity, traditionally, they've been blamed. They've been blamed uh, for it as a personal choice. So I, I like the movement we see now that obesity is a disease, just like cancer or diabetes, and that we need to move beyond the individual and think about how do we how do we help that individual navigate our current environment? You know, this obesogenic environment. So I think I think that's where we'll we'll get some gains in all of this. But of course, the, the train has left the station. 42% of Americans have obesity right now. So we can't just be speaking about prevention all the time. We definitely need to be thinking about treatment as well. When 42% of your population has a disease, um, you have to blend you know, prevention and treatment efforts together. So I think that we have to put everything we have on this. You know, We have a whole armamentarium from bariatric surgery to weight loss, uh, drugs, to lifestyle interventions for the treatment of obesity, and then also, of course, the whole prevention angle, starting in childhood with healthy lifestyles and um, and all that. So, you know, it's extremely complex. Like I said, you know, I've been in the field 25 years, and it gets more and more complex every year. You know, the physiology and the biology of obesity so we learn something new every day and the the interactions with the environment it just seems to get more and more complex and of course now um, we have an increased realization of uh, what weight bias and stigma uh, can also do on a person's weight loss trajectory as well as now thinking about underserved populations and how they are disproportionately affected by obesity or how they have a higher risk and these sorts of things and trying to understand all of that. So it's certainly more complex than we ever thought. And and you mentioned that there's many, many methods, even, even surgery, medication and lifestyle adaptation, and you have had success with the lifestyle adaptation. How do you see that we should approach these different methods should some be more for certain groups or how, how would you approach it yeah i think you know in the u.s we have uh, obesity management and treatment guidelines that they're developed in 2013 and they're very clear that the cornerstone of obesity management should be lifestyle intervention intensive behavioral intervention um, towards healthier lifestyle but then of course for certain individuals who have a high risk and have a high BMI, then you can move into other things such as the drugs and the, and the surgeries. So I think these kind of treatment algorithms are very useful. You know, at, at some point with a very high BMI, it's very hard for individuals to move. 
you know, that you can't expect them to do 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity per week. So you need to be thinking about special considerations given their very high risk of morbidity and mortality. So I know we'd all like to think that we can treat everything with physical activity. <clears throat> uh, at some point, we have to consider alternative therapies as well. And, and basically in weight loss, there's, there's probably different stages. And, and you said that you had nutrition and physical activity. Do you, do you see some stages that, for example, in the beginning, you should concentrate on nutrition and then maybe physical activities for the maintenance of the, of the new weight? Or how, how would you see it? So, you know, I am, I am a physical activity researcher. That, I've, <laughs> that has been my focus for sure. Um, and I was, as we developed our intervention, I was certainly preaching the benefits of physical activity at every stage. However, uh, several of my colleagues who worked very closely with, um, you know, obesity treatment programs and weight loss interventions, you know, they were, they agreed that physical activity is extremely important for weight loss and for long-term weight loss maintenance. However, um, they argued at the very beginning of these studies, or not just studies, but these, these interventions, wherever they're delivered, that patients need to see some, uh, some success early on. And to do that, we really need to restrict calories and focus on portion control. So of course I fought that all the, all the way, but um, they were right. And I'm, I'm coming around to that view that, you know, for to kickstart anyone's weight loss, I think we really need to restrict calories as well as physical activity. But from what I've seen, you know, that, that focus on portion control and just getting them to cut the calories, that really kickstarts the intervention, that kickstarts their weight loss journey. And then we fold in physical activity and they're feeling much better about the whole thing. So it's a little bit of an art and a science, you know. The other thing I didn't mention yet, really, was the individual nature of the program. You know, this was not a one-size-fits-all weight loss intervention. It was very, very individualized or personalized, as you, as you say these days, personalized medicine, where everyone's intervention was different. You know, we didn't just hit everybody with the same message. So it was the, we tailored the intervention for what was the problem with the patient at the time. The patient could be struggling with physical activity and not being able to get enough steps in. So we would help them with that. That would be our focus. Another patient could be struggling with uh, midnight eating, you know, eating before bed. We would help them with that. Other patients could be dealing with stress at work and eating during work because they're so stressed. So we would focus on that. So it was it was typically uh, a personalized intervention to really um, target the areas they were having trouble with. You know, if they were if they were doing very well with physical activity and they were meeting the guidelines and they were very happy with that, then why would we want to mess with that? You know, we want to target something else, which was the problem and vice versa. So that's something else I think I've learned is, you know, weight loss is not one size fits all. It has to be individualized to the patient. And how did you approach physical activity? Was it more about exercise or non-exercise activity? How, how did you approach? Probably it was individualized, but how, how was the basic guideline? Yeah, it was really following the, the physical activity guidelines, 
for Americans, trying to get their activity up to 150 to 170 minutes a week. But it, was, it wasn't as much of a focus on exercise per se. It was that incidental type activity and getting their steps up. We, would, uh, we could give them a pedometer, for example, and show them how to use that and to tell them, you know, just take extra steps and, and try to, um, and, and, and show them different ways of doing that just so they could get their activity levels up. Um, again, these were individuals on average with a BMI of 37 in our study. Uh, they were typically older. The average age was about 50, uh, but we had many people in their 60s and early 70s. So, you know, you don't want to, someone who's unaccustomed to doing exercise, you know, we didn't want to just tell them to start going and doing high intensity interval training or something like that. So we really try to make it part of their lifestyle and building it in. So um, we're now analyzing the physical activity data and we'll be able to see how that, how that played out. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Research Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes. So be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.